Listen to something fresh. Listen to Salam Media. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Good morning and a warm welcome to this Sunday morning edition of the Special Focus. It is the 26th of April and it's the second day of this blessed month of Ramadan. My name is Zahid Jadwit and I am with you this morning right until 10 a.m. So coming up on the show... Between around half past nine and ten o'clock, we'll be introducing a new Ramadan exclusive feature on the show. We'll be airing a documentary by Al Jazeera. So this documentary is titled Is Apartheid Over in South Africa? And I'll tell you the reason why we've chosen this particular documentary this week. So tomorrow is Freedom Day and it will mark 26 years since the first democratic elections were held here in South Africa. But before that, we'll be speaking lockdown issues. We'll be speaking to the Institute of Race Relations about a document which they've published. The document explains how South Africa could adopt a gradual approach to reopening after the lockdown. That, of course, is in light of President Ramaphosa's announcement on Thursday. Before that, though, tomorrow is indeed Freedom Day, so today we are looking at democracy in South Africa. How far we have managed to come since the inception of democracy in South Africa and where to next for the country. Over the course of the years we have enjoyed under democracy, we have indeed come across many different challenges and we still face many, as we head further away from the dark days of apartheid. So let's dive straight into the show now. Let me now welcome our panel for today. Firstly, we have Mr. Omar Bacha, who is the CEO of SA History Online. And Mr. Bacha, welcome to the show today. Thank you for inviting me, Mr. Chairman. And we have Mr. David van Veek. He is the lead researcher at the Benchmarks Foundation. Thank you for joining us um, and welcome to the show, sir. Thank you for having us on, on the show, and, and uh, I greet the other guest, Mr. Omar, as well. Good morning. All right. Later on in the show, we'll also have Mr. Irfan Mangera of the Ahmed Kathrada Foundation, and he will be speaking to us about how the born free generation sees democracy and the current situation that we find ourselves in. But for now, let's begin with Mr. Bacha. Mr. Bacha, for the benefit of the younger listeners that are out there listening to the show today, please briefly relate to us your story about the days of apartheid. What was it like living in such a time of discrimination? Well, <laughs> that's a very difficult question because, you know, uh, apartheid, uh, when you grow up, you're actually quite uh, ignorant about what apartheid means what, uh, and, and its impact on people. What we, what we did experience was discrimination and you experienced it from the time you uh, you started going to school, um, that you went to a school that was uh, like I went to a school that was segregated, only Indian children. Uh, and, you know, uh, and you, and then you begin to answer, and then, you know, some of, uh, the, sorry, the area I grew up in, there was just one street separating us from the white community. Mm-hmm. And the white community in that particular area were largely working class white yeah. people, families. And um, our and we had to go through that those streets 
to, you know, to go into town or to go to the main shopping centers. And we always encountered a lot of hostility um, from young people about our age, you know, who called you names. And um, so you realized that there was a difference between you and them. Um, but we also lived in a ghetto, in this ghetto, in the Gray Street complex, and in the Warwick Avenue area that I grew up in. There were white families, uh, uh, mixed families, with white parents or um, and, and black uh, mothers or the other way around. So you always grew up quite confused about this, but you knew that there was this white world. It really becomes very, very obvious when you go to public spaces like the beach, and then you realize uh -uh, you are separated. You go to any cinema, you realize you're separated. You couldn't go to certain parks because you were always shooed away from that, even if though they were open. Um, so, you know, you, you, you grew up always knowing that there was discrimination uh, and your parents and people in your family would all the time refer to people and the differences. So, you know, you grew up with these differences and you had to then navigate it. Mm -hmm. um, in 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 my case, uh, the difference between us and the whites was as as uh, great as between us and African community. Um, even though we lived in a very mixed area, uh, so you know there was there was always these factors. You went to school work. You were told um, that you were different and that there were differences between you and others. Um, and, and yeah, so it takes a long time for one to unlearn all the things that, that you learn about people as you grow older. And as I said, I was lucky because I was able to bridge that gap as a very young boy, uh, my friends were right across, you know, uh, all the cultural divisions and racial divisions. Um, and also my home, my father and his friends, Manisha, friends were from all the various sectors of our community. So I, I grew up in a slightly unusual home in that sense. Um, but most of us, our links with African people in particular was in the streets or as servants. They, they worked in our homes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what I, I believe that you did get involved in anti-apartheid work at some point in your life. I think it was through artwork and writing. So what was that one moment that you believe could have pushed you towards this anti-apartheid, taking up the anti-apartheid struggle? Well, firstly, I again grew up in this area where most 
quite a lot of the Congress people, ANC and South African uh, Indian Congress people, um, and all my friends were the children of the activists. So, you know, people are, uh, again, very aware of uh, this group of people, these families that were very political. And, and sometimes, on many occasions, you will find that the parents, the fathers or mothers, have been arrested. And, you know, so you knew that there was this opposition. For me, uh, my the incident that changed my life was uh, on the 1st of April, 1960, they, our schools were clo asked to close and we were, we were sent home. But as I was going home, um, I saw this demonstration of people and the army blocking the roads. And I joined them. And just within a couple of minutes, the army began shooting into the, just over the heads of the people. And in later, as we, I, I found out, um, they shot into the crowd. And, you know, we had to disperse. Fortunately, it wasn't far from my home. And so, but it was, moment which really shocked me and shocked everyone in in our communities um because quite two of two people were killed and quite a lot of people were wounded mm -hmm. that was for me the turning point mm -hmm. and i became then very active in the student movement the first year in high school mm -hmm. Okay, let me now bring in Mr. David Van Veik. Um, Mr. Van Veik, I'm sure you've heard how Mr. Omar Padsha was speaking about the days of apartheid when there would be discrimination and um, people would call him names. And he particularly mentioned that one incident that, turn, uh, that was a turning point for his life that led him to take up um, the anti-apartheid struggle. So let's turn the table around now. What was it like as a white person living in the time of apartheid for you? Well, I was born in the town of Delcom in the Free State, which was a gold mining town. And um, at 7 o'clock at night, there was a, an alarm siren that went off, uh, the kind of siren that you heard during the Second World War when there was a bombing raid over London. And when that siren went off at night at 7 o'clock, all black men had to be out of the town or face arrest. Uh, black women were allowed to stay in the town in back rooms, um, we had backrooms to all our houses, and the people, the domestic workers who worked in our houses were usually black women, and they stayed in the back rooms um, of, of these houses. But they were not allowed to stay with their husbands because their husbands could not be in town. So effectively, as a white child, I had two mothers, a black mother and a white mother. And, and uh, my, my, my white mother, my biological mother, uh, was very social and she played a lot of tennis and all kinds of other things. She was often out of the house and so on. And we were effectively looked after by a black mother. Um, but this black mother also had her own children, which were far away in Bitsy's Hook. Uh, Bitsy's Hook was like uh, almost the Bantustan area, where, where, which was a labor center area for apartheid. 
children stayed there, but they were staying without their mother. They were staying with their grandmother. So for a white person under apartheid, it was like a national socialism almost. You know, the state looked very well after white people in this country. Um, you know, in the free state at that time, Indian people like Mr. Omar could not come into the free state at all. They could not live there at all. They could only pass through it. Uh, the law prohibited any Indian people from staying there. Um, if you went to the shops in those days, there were separate little windows outside where black people had to buy through the window. They were not allowed to come into the shop at all. Uh, cinemas, they were, they were not allowed to come into cinemas. They were not allowed to participate in uh, major sporting events and so on. Um, so uh, it was a white world. It was an artificial white world that we lived in. And, and, and it, was, um, it was very surrealistic in, 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 in many senses because the apartheid government designed space in such a way that very often the townships were hidden from view. The poverty was hidden from view. And you could uh, be forgiven for thinking that um, South Africa was effectively a country where there was a white majority with uh, black uh, servants um, and, 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 and workers. Of course, my father was a mining engineer, so I saw black workers on the mines very often because they lived in compounds. And on Sundays, we very often went to... Uh, events which were arranged where there were Zulu dances and things like that uh, by the mine itself. Um, but effectively, uh, I only began—I only came to realize that I was a minority when I went into exile in 1983 because I could not support the apartheid government anymore. And I got onto a bus in Harare and I realized I was the only white person on the bus. In yeah. South Africa at that time, Buses were also segregated, and in Johannesburg you could get onto a bus and it would be full of white people. Getting onto that bus full of black people, I suddenly realized that white people are actually a minority. Mm. And um, so if we look at South Africa today, we still have many challenges. And perhaps some would say that it's um, that blaming apartheid is scapegoating in, uh, in, in the lack of addressing our challenges, and perhaps not. So... Where do you think? How far have we come in addressing the challenge, uh, the 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 effects of apartheid, and how far have we prospered as a democracy, David? Well, I think that in 1994 was a big historic compromise between white and black people in South Africa, but historic compromises very often fail. You know, um, they fail because they don't address the contradictions of the society. They paper them over or sweep them under the carpet, and I think that. Truth and Reconciliation Commission really swept under the carpet a lot of the crimes and so on that were committed under apartheid. But apart from that, the structural um, nature of the economy was not really addressed. You know, the, the fact of the matter is that if we look at South Africa today, the economy is still largely owned by a minority. And, uh, you know, you can have political power, but if you don't have economic power, you can't address the key issues facing the society. You cannot address the issue of unemployment. You cannot address the issue of poverty. Uh, you cannot uh, address the issues of inequality. And unfortunately, today we have the most unequal society on the planet. And, um, you know, this COVID-19 virus has just brought to surface again the gross inequalities of our society because middle-class people who are living in the suburbs and so on can cope with this virus very easily. 
but those who are poor and living in townships and urban ghettos and so on uh, really, really struggle to, to cope with the lockdown um, and cope to survive and, and, and defeat themselves in, 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 in the context that we find ourselves in today. Mm-hmm. We'll speak about the lockdown a little bit later, um, but for now, I want to find out, were there any actions, perhaps, that were taken by the apartheid government that may have been the self-destruct button for the regime? Well, I think apartheid was unsustainable. Um, it, it, it could not be sustained. And, and it was a form of racial capitalism. It, it locks black people into labor-sending areas uh, or Pakistan. And it made it illegal for the majority of black people to be in so-called white areas. So you became an illegal migrant in your own country, so to speak. You became an illegal alien in your own country. And you can't, you can't keep 90% of the people in a country in that kind of status. It is just impossible to sustain. And it, it, it was inevitable that people would rise up against the system. And in the 1980s, um, the system could no longer put with the fact that people just utterly rejected it. Uh, people in the townships and so on boycotted, they, they went on strike, uh, they, 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 they made the system effectively ungovernable. And it was inevitable that it would collapse. But, you know, the, the compromise that was reached in 1994, unfortunately, didn't resolve all the contradictions that the country faced. Mm-hmm. And I want to get um, Mr. Umar Bacha's thoughts on this as well. So, Mr. Bacha, what was it that eventually brought down the regime and opened the door to freedom? Well, first and foremost, you know, we must understand that when we, but when we started mobilizing against apartheid, especially after 1960, we never talked about a revolution. Uh, radical change in our society. We were fighting for, uh, you know, equal rights. Um, and and so in the struggle, we we didn't think through, uh, you know, the, the the we we assumed that we were going to take total power through armed struggle and and um, defeat the uh, ruling class uh, militarily and um, and then you know your society would take different forms you know there was consensus about what sort of society we were going to create other than one that was free of discrimination um, and so uh, you know, and also the because of the pressure, because of the incredible international and internal pressure of protest and making the country ungovernable, the ruling class itself understood that they could not continue um, uh, uh, being the overlords in Southern Africa. And so, you know, they began to think through the nature of the change that they wanted. Um, with us, the process of negotiation didn't involve us in thinking through what sort of society we're going to, uh, you know, uh, what sort of society will evolve. Uh, you know, we, we left it, unfortunately, 
largely in the hands of the leadership of the liberation organization. And so we, and, and so we, that was the compromise. The compromise was that we would get one person, one vote. There would be no discrimination. Um, and and <coughs> we had, you must remember, we also had a government of national unity until 1994, uh, even after 1994 for a while. So we, this compromise um, also came at the height of, of uh, major changes in the international arena with the fall of the uh, Soviet Union, uh, the Berlin Wall, and the changes in the Soviet Union um, create, uh, created a situation which allowed for, which forced forced our liberation organizations uh, to to understand that we would have to make we have to come to agreement on on nature of the change. We also, as part of the negotiations, undertook to pay back all the apartheid debt, international debt, um, and so you know we 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 worked on the premise that over time we would be able to push for change. And as we know, that didn't happen to the extent that we wanted. That change and radical change was compromised by the leadership of, the, uh, of some of the leaders in the ANC and in particular Zuma. Um, and misclick. By this time, uh, we were in a, in a lot of trouble uh, in developing an economic policy and a social policy um, and an industry uh, and making it more local, more uh, less controlled by one particular group you know we, we didn't meet all the things that we needed to do all the demands that we wanted all the problems that we saw and we didn't agree uh, on on the way forward also we didn't the liberation organizations um, so we are now faced with a crisis a uh, crisis uh, which is which is quite um, unusual uh, world changing a crisis that we, we we together with the rest of the world are really struggling a crisis of capitalism a crisis of socialism um, and a crisis of in inability to deal with uh, a phenomena like this virus um, yeah so we've fallen back 20 years, actually, in terms of jobs, in terms of industry, in terms of everything, uh, all overnight, we call them back. Even the most so-called most powerful country in the world, the U.S., now they overnight you have thousands of people unemployed, millions, actually. And, um, and so there's a crisis there also.
Mm -hmm. A very important point which you actually mentioned, and I was going to ask, um, how would the anti-apartheid strugglers who are now who have now gone by, um, how would they view present-day South Africa after apartheid? Um, in light of all the challenges which we have been facing recently and during the span of our democracy since 1994. So that's a thought I want you to hold there. Let's take a short ad break and when we get back, we will um, dig deeper into this discussion. Please stay tuned. Listen to something fresh. Listen to Salam Media. Welcome back to The Special Focus. Welcome back to Salah Media. You are listening to The Special Focus with myself, Zahid Jadwit, and today we are discussing Freedom Day, which is coming up tomorrow. And we are basically assessing how far we've come since the beginning of democracy here in South Africa. Now, before the break, Mr. Omar Bacha, who is the founder of SA History Online and, in fact, the CEO of that website, mentioned that perhaps we have not attained to the full extent the country that we wanted in terms of liberation. Now, Mr. David Van Veek, what do you think those liberation strugglers who participated in the cam- campaign to end apartheid would have thought about the current situation which we find ourselves in? For example, we find ourselves grappling with inequality, we've experienced maladministration, corruption, etc. David? Yeah, I think that um, from, from my perspective, the, the, the structural issues in our, in our country, the economic issues, the question of land, the question of uh, monopolistic control of the economy. You have basically five retail, big retailers dominating the retail sector. You have five or six banks dominating banking. You have, um, you know, a dominance over all the sectors of the economy by a very small group of very powerful corporations. And um, there's no space for economic participation by other people so long as these groups absolutely dominate the economy of the country. And, you know, um, I spent 10 years in Harare and, and, and we, were, we were working on um, MK safe houses and things like that there. And I spoke to lots of people who were involved in the struggle from MK and so on. I still speak to them today and engage with them today. And many people have become very, very disillusioned. You know, people who have left the country got training in the Soviet Union and elsewhere, came back to fight in the liberation struggle and so on. And and, and for them as individuals, this is not the future that they that they foresaw. Um, but, you know, we, we make history, but we don't make it as we please, uh, Karl Marx once said. And so the, the outcome of the struggle is not really, I think, what many people expected it would be. You know, if we even talk about basic things like equal rights and so on. Um, uh, access to justice, uh, for example, is really not equal yet. Um, you know, um, access to services really is not equal yet. Access to opportunity is not equal yet. Um, and, and, and so there is a great deal of disillusionment, and we really, really need to get down to to dealing with these key critical issues because the longer we... The longer we we fail to deal with them, the more intense the contradictions will become, and the greater the explosion will be at the end of the day. You know, we can't we can't postpone things anymore. We actually need to sit down and deal with them. 
And now, Mr. Bacha, Monday will be celebrated as Freedom Day. Um, it will mark 26 years since our first democratic elections in which people of all backgrounds could participate. I'm assuming that you voted in that historic election. So my question is, how did that feel for you? What was the atmosphere like when you cast your vote and made your mark? Well, um, I, I was part of the... Uh, you know, UDF uh, met uh, leadership in the Western Cape and then with the changes after 1990, um, participated uh, virtually in rebuilding the ANC and the Communist Party. Um, and on, you know, during the election, I was part of the election machinery. So I... I'm, uh, you know, I'm a photographer, as you know, and even I never took pictures. I was so busy running from uh, one election station to another, uh, trying to make sure that we've got people going to the polls and also voting uh, for us. Um, so uh, I didn't vote. Uh, in the station nearest to my home, I voted in another constituency. Well, we didn't have constituencies then, but I voted in the Pokap because that was where I was just before the voting stopped. And, um, yeah, um, you know, it, it was so much. You know, we, we worked so incredibly hard from 1990 to right to 1994. On the day after the election, I said to my wife that, look, now I'm going back, not into the ANC, you know, or, or into government or whatever. I'm going back to do what I want to do as a activist, as an artist. And I started working in back in the community as a cultural worker. Um, yeah, you know, the, the, you, um, there was a big debate also at that stage uh, where we, some of us felt that everyone going into government, all our best cadres going into government would weaken community organizations. Uh, and structures that we had built, and that was absolutely true. That's what happened. We we expected all change to come from government and uh, and the leadership in government, and then allowed um, allowed ourselves to 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 lose sight of some of the key concerns of the day. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, Mr. Van Veek, of course, next week we are celebrating F Freedom Day and it will be qu under quite a unique situation since we are under lockdown. And so there's hardly any room to actually go out and celebrate our freedom as we normally do. What does Freedom Day mean for you, Mr. Van Veek? Well, well, I think for me, um, Freedom Day, I think, means a step forward. Um, we have taken a couple of steps backwards. As Omar just said, all the best cadres went into government, and now we have a situation where people feel that government must do 
everything for them. Um, and and uh, people have become passive. People have become depoliticized. They've become demobilized. They 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 no longer have that vibrant um, struggle culture that was there in the townships in the 1980s and in the factories and in communities and so on that was represented by the UDF and all the organizations that it's represented. Also, the labor movement itself has fractured and broken up and, and the trade union movement is not as strong as it was in 1994. And so for me, I think that the challenge that faces us is to rebuild participatory democracy rather than just representative democracy because people have come to feel that the state must do everything for them and that they themselves must not mobilize themselves to do these, these things in an environment which is much more free than it was under apartheid. It's easier to organize now. It's easier to criticize now. It is easier to uh, air your views now. It is easier, yet nobody is doing it. Um, you know, it was incredibly difficult to organize under apartheid. You know, so this new freedom that is there, people should actually be um, organizing around the key issues that are confronting us, inequality, landlessness, the issues of um, corruption, um, um, the issues of service delivery and so on. And, and not just in the form of protesting, but in the form of actually saying, what can we do as communities to actually do these things for ourselves, um, given the space that we are having? Because at the moment, in our passivity, we have opened the door up for tenderpreneurs and other people to exploit the situation and enrich themselves at the cost of the majority of the people. Mm. You know, uh, sorry, I just want to add to what David is saying. One of the, you know, the present situation, this crisis, which is a worldwide crisis, opens up a great deal of space for rethinking about the type of society we want. It's very obvious for everyone, all classes, that our destiny as human beings is, is one. And we can, you know, and this virus, this outbreak has just made us realize that no, that the class divisions and other divisions actually must be, must be re-looked at uh, we need to build human solidarity. We need a new type of government that is uh, uh, people-driven uh, and pro-core. Uh, we need a new type of economy uh, that doesn't make us all workers. Uh, we need, you know, it's obvious now that we need a national health uh, insurance. Um, but... We can't have that with private hospitals. We have to nationalize them. You know, there's, there's a whole lot of things that now opened up, not only for us, but it's common to all, all the communities in the world, all societies in the world. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, there's a great deal of new people. What people have done is taken back in many communities taken back their lives. They're the ones who began organizing and feeding people and housing people and fighting for better housing, fighting for people not to be evicted. You know, there's a, now an understanding that we are not each one of us an island. 
Mm-hmm. We are totally dependent on each other. And if, if we start from there, then I'm sure we can come up with new solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, a new ways of doing things yeah okay unfortunately we have reached um, the end of the show and so there's lots more to ask but unfortunately not enough time but just quickly in 30 seconds to wrap up on this point um david you can go first and then mr bacha what do you see in the future of south africa in the democracy of south africa in the way we do things and in the way we protect our democracy well i see um people coming together and 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 asking the challenging questions and and finding solutions to them we absolutely have to we have no choice we have to go forward we can't go back mm-hmm. okay mr bacha your parting shots well, first and foremost we all recognize now that we you know these inequalities um and and poverty is the you know condition of everyone in uh, to a large percent a large number part of our community uh, our society and other countries the same and that unless we begin to address these issues of poverty and inequality nobody's future is is guaranteed you know mm-hmm. um and and so yeah i want for me if we act and act correctly this opens up a whole lot of very exciting new ways of relooking at our society and relooking at what it is to be human again Okay, and unfortunately, that's where we have to leave it for today. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. Omar Bacha, CEO of SA History Online, and Mr. David Van Veek, lead researcher at the Benchmark Foundation. Thank you both so much for your time. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Yes. All right. Fantastic discussion, I must say, about um, how far we've come as a democracy and as a nation. Um, in terms of uh, emerging from apartheid. And so let's look at some of the comments which have been coming through relating to this discussion. A message from Anonymous reads, Is it not so ironic that Monday the 27th of April is Freedom Day and yet we are anything but free? I will never take my freedom for, uh, of movement or McDonald's for granted again. And that, I think, is referring to the lockdown. And then again, another one, um, Francis tweets, Monday is probably the biggest national freedom day since the actual freedom day ever. The whole country is united in the quest for freedom. And finally, a quick one here. A tweet from John says, Do the people also know that Helen Ziller, Helen Suzman and many more fought for their lives to end apartheid? Why are they never mentioned on a freedom day celebration? Why are they constantly making out as if Helen Ziller is a racist? I think this speaks about the notion that um, has perhaps has arisen in the post-apartheid era, that whites are now excluded from the new democracy. I don't know what you make of this. Um, let me know what you think about this. Um, you can send your tweets, your tags, uh, tweet and tag at Zahi Jadid and at Salah Media. You send your WhatsApp comments to 0617660355. Since we are together until 10 a.m. this morning and it is a special Ramadan broadcast, let's now take an ad break and when we get back we speak to Irfan Mangera of the Ahmed Kathrada Foundation who will speak to us about how the younger generation looks at South Africa as a democracy. Stay tuned.